Well, first, uh, Nancy Eisenberg, thanks for joining me on Interchange. Well, thanks for having me. Um, Before we get into the nitty-gritty, though, let me ask you to put the record straight on that Broadway juggernaut Hamilton, a myth-making myth, like it's a myth-making or a myth-sustaining apparatus if there ever was one right now. Yes, it is. And I think what we have to realize is that there's nothing new there. Every generation reinvents the founders to look like themselves, to sound like themselves, to really, I mean, what Hamilton is really about, it's a social commentary on our current political environment. Several people have said this is the musical for the age of Obama. Uh, And even the traits that are given to Obama, you know, are, are, you know, that are given to Hamilton are essentially building on what, you know, Nate Silver said about Obama, you know, that he's pragmatic, that he's smart, that he's multicultural. So these are the qualities that are being given to Hamilton. The problem that I have with the musical is, first of all, it's not history. I mean, it's historically inaccurate almost at every moment. Um, And that's not surprising either, because Miranda is not a historian. We can't expect him to actually know the full history and know the controversies. He relied on Chernow's biography, which has its own biases. Um, But on top of that, I think that Americans love myth. Uh, Myth is easy to digest. It makes us feel proud of our country. It gives us a storyline that does, at moments, unite us. But I think that the problem with that is then we don't learn from the past and we don't understand the real history of America. When we turn certain characters into heroes, other into villains. I mean, it's just like a Hollywood script, essentially. Right. Uh, well, as you say, it's, it's one thing maybe that we can recognize it as such. It's an entertainment, and we, we like to dismiss those kinds of things as we, if we take them seriously. But I, I think that that's part of the problem, that we dismiss them, and yet they sort of get into our thinking um, in, a, in a backdoor way, perhaps. Uh, we believe that those things are true if they're convincing enough, I suppose. Or, uh, yes, that, is the, that is the real danger. I mean, people, the same thing happened with HBO's John Adams, mm. where people went on Wikipedia and changed the facts because of what they had seen in the HBO. Is that right? I didn't know that. Uh, because they love Paul Giamatti so much. Right, and, and the, the, the problem is that we know that entertainment can be more persuasive. We know that it's going to shape what people think. But it's really, really misleading to sort of erase what Hamilton really stood for. His entire party was anti-immigration. <laughs> so to make him into the self-made man who represents you know, the American dream is just totally wrong. Mm. It's an interesting, yeah, interesting uh, thing for... Uh to do at this point, right? It's an, uh, especially in terms of, uh, as you say, uh, trying to imagine Obama, although it's it's oddly seems appropriate, right? I think he's, he's not done very well in terms of immigration, right? So maybe he is Hamiltonian. Well, I don't think they're even thinking about that. I think right. they're thinking of him as being, uh, you know, representative of the American dream. You know, finally America has uh, elected someone who is a African-American, um, someone of a mixed-race background, uh, and that somehow this sort of is the fulfillment of a promise that Hamilton started. Mm. And in fact, all the facts prove that to be not true. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the problem. I think we learn a lot more of our past. When we look at it critically, we look at it seriously, we realize that Hamilton was not at all progressive. He endorsed child labor. 
<laughs> so the people who praise him for anticipating our industrial economy miss that that economy was built on the backs of exploiting women and children. Hmm. So if you leave out all the things you don't like about Hamilton and only exaggerate the aspects or invent aspects or qualities that he never had, then a modern audience can identify with him. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, making him into an abolitionist, making his wife and sister-in-law into feminists, which they were not, uh, is, is just a, a real misreading of our past, and I think puts blinders on as opposed to having us engage in our past in a serious way, because then we can learn from our mistakes instead of erasing them. Hmm. Well, I think it was, uh, I saw quoted somewhere, Simon Shama said something like, like history ought to be depressing. Right. No, I mean, I, I think people have said about my white trash book that it will make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think history should make you uncomfortable. I think it should force you to understand complex things, not assume that the past can be reduced to a soundbite, uh, and to realize that when we try to understand the past, when we try to look at the facts, <laughs> that we appreciate the complexity that it's not simple and it takes time and you have to think about it and you can't reduce real historical problems to a musical score. Mm-hmm. So it's it's funny I was thinking as uh, as I was reading through through the book um you know we teach uh, there's this thing we teach kids or we say all all the time sort of also like sticks and stones can break my bones but names or words will never hurt me and this is actually uh, probably exactly wrong. It is wrong. I mean, it's it's supposed to be uplifting for children to hear that, right. to realize that they can they can find inside themselves the strength uh, to carry on and to not let someone demean them. But what this book and, and I pay a great deal of attention to vocabulary, to looking at how each generation reinvented a taxonomy for describing the poor. And the reason I do that is because even sometimes historians mute the past, because instead of saying, instead of talking about squatters and crackers, who really were the landless frontier people who moved into the back country, you know, during the, you know, even before the revolution, the American Revolution, and after the American Revolution, scholars have preferred to call them settlers, or if we think of the term pioneer. Uh, these terms are deprived of the very potent political meaning that is given to class and has always been given to class categories. And you, you, you erase that again. You, you remove that from the story if you don't pay attention to the words that are used and what they mean at that particular time period. Right. That's pretty fascinating in, in a general sense to imagine that uh, I would not have an even challenged the idea of pioneer or, or settler uh, in terms of it uh, making a kind of neutral or va- value value positive term um, and sort of erasing the, the the on the ground hardships and strangenesses and violence and everything else that you get thrown in there with the reality of life in that period. No, and even I mean I found an article in the 1840s where they were debating this, and essentially they said that settler is a more neutral term. Mm. Um, so even in the 19th century, hmm. politicians were aware of the potent meaning that was attached to words. Mm-hmm. And well, I think that we as historians have to pay a great deal of attention to that. Not make the text so reader-friendly 
that we erase the fact. Right. Well, I was. Uh, I tend to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in my fiction reading to the 19th century, actually. And um, one of the things that's always struck me is how how we we haven't moved beyond that sort of century that realizes the 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 negatives that are going on. You know, that we we realize the the industrial revolution is harming so many people. We realize the the way that the country is built on slavery. We realize that, you know, abolition is an abolition of slavery, not uh, something that supports equality. Um, you know, all these things are in in that century already, and, and we've not even begun to really recognize the, the you know, the understanding that they had, uh, I think, in, in that period. No, I think because we know history is a contested medium. Um, not only do we have the popularizers, the people who invent myths, who try to rewrite the past in a more favorable way, a way that can be celebrated, and that's unfortunately tends to be the case with popular and public history. Mm-hmm. But we also know that something like the Civil War, I mean, that's been a battleground. Um, um, how histories are written um, and who has the right to tell histories uh, is, is not a neutral terrain either, because we know the whole long history of the lost cause and Southerners who, you know, bent over backwards to somehow redeem the Confederacy and paint it in a favorable light, uh, and, and again, sort of not tell the complete story. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to recognize, and that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about history. The topics that I've written about usually are ones where I've been the first step of a good historian is to challenge the mythology, to find out what is the consensus, and to question it, and to be skeptical. Um, because when, when the story is too neatly tied together, it usually is wrong. <laughs> right. If it makes, if it sort of, kind of just echoes what we already think we know, what we claim is common sense, it's probably been distorted. It probably isn't accurate. Um, and that, in a sense, is what drew me to the White Trash book. It's what drew me to writing a biography of Aaron Burr, because I felt that historians were taking shortcuts. More fiction had been written about Aaron Burr than history. Hmm. Uh, and the fiction had influenced the history. Uh, and relying on, you know, it, I had this joke I used to tell when the, the Burr book came out, that relying on Alexander Hamilton's opinion of Aaron Burr would be like relying on Ken Starr's opinion of Bill Clinton. <laughs> um, you can't do that. I mean, if you're a serious scholar, you have to actually know the subjects. You have to know that people's sources may not be reliable. They may be prejudiced. They may have a political agenda. Uh, so you can't rely on someone's arch-political rival and assume they're objective, <laughs> they're morally honest, and their opinion is somehow, um, you know, doesn't share uh, the biases of that, that particular person. And, then, and the same thing is true, I think, when we think about class in America. I mean, one of the things, you know, I start out with the book by trying to challenge the way we teach history, the way we gloss over the colonial British colonization period as if it had no impact as if it can be reduced to proud pilgrims and Puritans searching for religious liberty, or we, you know, celebrate the Pocahontas story, mm-hmm. as if this is, which is, you know, in Disney's version becomes this multicultural love story. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's part of the problem, is that a lot of Americans either don't care about history, they're relying on the history they learned in grade school, high school, uh, and unfortunately, in a lot of high school, football coaches are the ones stuck in the history. 
<laughs> and I know that from experience because I used to teach in Oakland. And I had many students tell me that. <laughs> That's, that is hilarious. I taught high school myself for a couple of years, and the, the majority of our English teachers were, were the uh, coaches. Oh, that's weird. Usually, yeah. it's you know they can put them in the history class because all of the, they can you know they can show films and it's you know it's not like math or science. Hmm. But I thought it, English, you still have to teach grammar, don't you? I don't know. It's it's <laughs> like it's like mechanics, isn't grammar? You just you know you plug certain things into a sentence. Yeah. No. I mean, I just wish they would hire coaches separately. Hire them for what they do well. Yeah. Why sort of assume that they that should be the priority when you're hiring an English teacher, or a history teacher? But that's part of the problem. I think that. I mean, even if we, and if we look at the political landscape, even today, um, despite the fact that Bernie Sanders has talked about class, Donald Trump has been attacked as the white trash candidate, I still think that Americans don't really know how to talk about class in a meaningful way. Um, they're looking for a shorthand, easy version. Um, and that's why I think, you know, even though Bernie Sanders is right to say that the, we, we need to pay attention to the gross concentration of wealth in the 1%, that's not the only problem. You know, the problem is also the class ideology that many of the upper middle class and the middle class shape it hold in order to reinforce the boundary between them and the poor, them and the lower classes. Um, and that's how a class system is upheld. You have to have an ideology that gives people a reason to rationalize poverty. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the the primary uh, question is poverty, and we've been talking about that for a very long time. And the idea that um, you know you don't reform education uh, by reforming what you teach, uh, you know, we've we've made very clear understanding by multiple studies that you know if you're impoverished, you're not going to do well. Uh, you're, and I think you you point out uh, in multiple multiple times that. Um, you know, and multiple studies have that we were born into a class and we stay there for the most part as well. Yeah, I think that's the thing that, that challenges the greatest myth because the myth perpetrated by people like Thomas Jefferson and others is the idea that we broke free from the British class system at the time of the American Revolution, that it was a dramatic change. And this is repeated over and over again when Americans say, we're an exceptional country. We're a country that is the land of opportunity. We actually provided for social mobility and for erasing the, the, the rigid class distinctions. But the real story is that we were, at the time of the American Revolution, people like Franklin, people like Jefferson, have been imbued in a British culture. So they adopted a British culture for thinking about the poor. And one of the key, I, I highlight two key themes that recur again and again, because America, for most of our history, was a rural society. So I'm talking a lot about the rural poverty, but the importance of, first of all, the way in which the British analogized the poor to people who lived on wastelands, the importance of land, as a metaphor of civic virtue if you're a property owner, and then as a measure of failure if you are landless. So a lot of poor white trash, a lot of the names that were used to describe them describe horrible land, uh, bog trotters, uh, pineys. Sandhillers. And this is the idea that the poor are just extrusions of the scrubby, swampy land which they occupy. Mm. Um, and wasteland itself, that term led one of the earliest promoters of British colonization, Richard Hacklett, to argue that the people who should be sent to the New World were waste people. 
So that's really where white trash comes from. It comes from a way of British thinking that goes all the way back to the 1500s. Um, and that's where I think my book is decidedly different, because no one has really traced it back to its British roots. Most people who've written about white trash either talk about the contemporary period or root it in the antebellum South. Now, it's not that the antebellum South isn't important, because that's the first time in the 1820s we know that the term white trash is first used. It appears in print. Uh, but that's not really where the term comes from. I highlight that Jefferson and Abigail Adams, when they referred to the rural poor, called them rubbish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just a variation on the, on the same theme again. Well, does trash, I mean, we say white trash, or it's what we say now, I don't know... Um, when you're talking about waste people and rubbish and the various other nasty things that that people are called, um, uh, one is off-scourings, which is like fecal matter or something like that. And um, the worst. Thanks to the Elizabethans for that. But then, as I said, that was also a favorite term of Jefferson Davis. Well, it's a fun one. (laughs) You know, the Union Force and Northerners. It it doesn't disappear uh, in the 1500s. Well, let me ask if there's, um, there seems to be, and maybe I, again, uh, um, you can correct me because maybe I'm mixing my histories here, but is there any relation to um, like the enclosure laws in the time in in Britain as well, that this is kind of all cohering around this way in which we we take people, uh, or at least in, in Britain where we uh, there's this like uh, a kind of land grab there where all of a sudden people who were living a particular way are now renters and then they're shoved off into uh, to become soldiers and move to the town and things like that in that area? Yeah, there, I mean, you can find uh, important parallels. I mean, what the group that the British despised the most were vagrants. Hmm. And these are the mobile poor. And again, when you think about the transition that's created by land enclosure, forcing people off the land... Uh, that obviously increased yeah. uh, the number of vagrants. Um, and, and just as like I talk about, you know, nor- early North Carolina uh, and the way in which they are closely identified with the dismal swamp, again, the way in which the land defines the bog trotters and defines the poor in North Carolina in the 18th century, mm-hmm. you find a, a similar group of people who are seen as, you know, vagrants, you know, living in the living on the worst land is squatters essentially because they have no place else to live. Hmm. Um, so that idea of the mobile poor is, is 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 another consistent theme. So we have one that associates them with waste and trash. Another theme is this idea of mobile the mobile poor who are seen as outside the economy, not having a stake in the economy. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what gets attached to the terms squatters and crackers. Mm -hmm. They are actually seen as people who are landless, who occupy land they don't own. Um, They can be violent. Mm -hmm. They threaten people who have legitimate title to the land to get off land that they want to lay a claim to. Um, And you also get that idea that I highlight that we don't understand about our own mythology is that when Jefferson and Franklin, for example, talked about the promise of America, they, fo- they focused on the size of the continent, and Tom Paine, too. They were all talking about the future. What the future held would be conditioned by the vast land holdings in this large continent. So what they were really promising was horizontal mobility, not upward mobility. And what they argued is that essentially, if you're not making it uh, in the original colonies and the states that, that they were turned into then what you needed to do was, you know, pack up 
and move west uh, and migrate. Uh, and for Franklin, he actually believed, he made the argument that Western migration would reduce class tensions. He argued it would create a happy mediocrity, that somehow the extremes of wealth would disappear, that it were more likely to exist in an urban environment. But the problem with that is that he was wrong. (laughs) The class system moved west. Large, powerful land speculators had access to the best land. They had the inside track to the land office. So land was never free. It was never open. I'm not even mentioning the fact that you know, the really darker inheritance from the British ideology is that they argued that the poor were kind of the first wave of migration because then they would be the ones who would have to fight mm-hmm. and deal with the Native Americans. And if they got killed off, nobody really cared. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were kind of the first wave. And then the next wave, the more sophisticated commercial farmer, farmers would move in. And the squatters, if they're still living, would have to move on. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Franklin even argued. He basically didn't like, he was not at all empathetic to the poor, despite his, you know, his upbringing. His own bootstraps. Yeah. yeah. He wasn't at all empathetic. He didn't like workhouses that much or houses. He thought the British were actually too charitable mm. um, as compared to the Germans. He felt Germans in Pennsylvania worked harder because they never had charity when they were back in Germany. But then he went on and said that the solution is people move west and he said the stronger will reproduce large families, and if they work hard, they'll succeed. But he was also said that if they don't succeed, they had two options, move on or starve. That's essentially was his idea of how you deal with the problem of poverty. It should be the new motto for the country. Yeah. Move on or starve. Right. I mean, it's, it's, this, it's this really, and I think you see this all the time when people get angry at the poor and say they're lazy. They should just work hard. And you've had many American politicians who basically have said if they're not starving, they're not really suffering. <laughs> um, and I think this is, this is the problem when we fail to understand that, first of all, our economy doesn't create jobs for everyone. They don't exist. Second of all, not everyone, as you mentioned before, we don't start in the same place. We don't have the same job or educational opportunities. Some people live in really safe neighborhoods. I highlight the importance of how we live in a class zone society. Mm -hmm. Um, In the same way racial segregation has divided us, so has class divided us in terms of our geography. And that really does determine what you can do. Now, yes, there are going to be the few examples, the people who rise up and become the role models. But in terms of a percentage, they're very small percentage. Right. They become the myth, they become the myth themselves. Right. Yeah, exactly. re- representatives of the myth. You know, the interesting thing about the idea of the mobile poor as well, it struck me that this was the problem with uh, the, the remnants of the, the indigenous culture, the native mobility as well, the people who, who didn't buy land, didn't think you could buy land, and the government itself had to figure out a way to make them homeowners in some sense, or um, you know, so they would be tied to the economy, as you were saying. Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning, I highlight like this in the very first chapter, when the British looked at Native peoples, they didn't understand their economy. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand the way they looked at geography and the land. And, of course, what did they immediately do? They saw Native Americans as nomads, as vagrants, and therefore they used that argument. That argument was one of the fundamental arguments that they used to justify 
taking land away from Native Americans because they didn't engage in the proper use, the productive use of land, which meant you had to do it the English way. You had to build fences. You had to stay on one track of land. You had to get title to that land. land you had to secure sovereignty to that land. Even for the, the Puritans, for example, you had to have cattle on that land mm. <laughs> to prove that you were a true homeowner and you knew how to use the land and make it productive. Um, and so it's not surprising that many early colonists viewed North America in general as a wasteland, mm-hmm. as a terror waste. Mm. And they, they didn't, it was a way to justify arguing that Native peoples had no legitimate claim to the, to the land. Mm. Um, this kind of, this, this fundamental assumption, and, and what I'm trying to highlight, this isn't at all surprising, of course. They're going to look at Native American peoples through the lens of their own British experience. So who do they analogize them to? Vagrants. Well, you know, the, um, the uh, you continue to sort of find these particular instances in in the deep past, but the, uh, a big part of the book is is that these are the th- this is the way we still operate in many ways. I think that um, you know trying to debunk some of these myths. I'm not sure that they'll matter. That's one of the things that we said. Uh, I think that the idea that these are not perfect people they they really aren't founding heroes perhaps uh, they have you know, we we know they're slave owners uh, now that we know that they talk a particular way about people we you understand the class uh, struggle there too the classism of of these particular individuals as well i don't know that having any knowledge of that makes a difference in our particular worldview now, I, I don't mean to be cynical. I, well, I guess I do mean to be well, cynical. Well, I understand. I'm cynical, yeah. too. I mm-hmm. think it's very hard to dislodge myths. I think it's very hard to make people face the facts. Um, it's, it's not only discomforting, but it can turn their world upside down. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, but I do believe history is important. I mean, this is sure. I'm a historian. <laughs> sure. I, I wanted to ask Great. about, um, you know, being a woman uh, yourself, a historian, and uh, we had um, Jill Lepore on here not that long ago as well, and trying to understand, is there, a, is there a different kind of history written by female scholars of history? Um, it, it always seemed to me the names you read, uh, historians from the past, these are men generally, uh, men um, that, we, that we talk about, men who are, who are the founders, men who make these things happen, and, and uh, you and Jill Lepore, at least for me, you know, two female historians who have said, you know, there's a lot of stuff you need to really pay attention to. I mean, I, I think it's complicated. I mean, I don't like to make a blanket statement. Sure. Because you can find women who write history from all different kinds of political perspectives. I mean, I think it has, in, in part, it's it, what I think... What a, a woman historian, and, or someone who's just even aware that women have a history, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like a, a big leap. And, and the history profession itself has changed. Mm. History, uh, you know, tended to be more conservative. I think that people do think of historians more in the form of a David McCullough, you know, mm-hmm. a nice old gentleman, uh, you know, a storyteller, uh, whereas they may not, it may be less common for them to think, well, a woman can play that role. Um, But part of the problem, I think, is that what a good historian should do is talk about things, focus on things that tend to be ignored. Um, And I think that at times, um, if you've been written out of history, as a large majority of women were, 
in, in telling the myths, for example, in talking about the founders, uh, it, will, it will make you immediately wonder, well, that's not really my history. Mm-hmm. Um, what's missing? Uh, and I think that, you know, that basic assumption, that curiosity, I mean, this is what I think is the most important. There, there are two traits that historians should have. They have to be curious and really curious uh, to, you know, look at things, talk about things, ex- do the kind of archival research to search things out that people don't want to pay attention to. And the other is you still have to be critical and skeptical. You can't just ratify the consensus. You have to be able to think outside the box. And that's where history, I think that's where you, you tend to get people writing histories that are interesting, that are challenging, uh, and that open new windows for people to think about the past. And to me, that's what makes for good history. Hmm. So you uh, let's turn, I guess, to, to to a few specific things too. I know it's it's one of those things that you can probably talk about um, with uh, with your friends. You know, we can talk about what white trash is to many of us as well. We can talk about what it means to uh, even identify yourself in that way at at some point, um, where you grow up and and who you live uh, live live among, and then be proud of that even in some sense. You know, trying to understand your own cultural heritage and and make meaning of it, but. Uh, a lot of what I think you're trying to do here is is say these things um, have more uh, real consequences than we imagine, or that you know it's not just the fact that we take sides and call people names, but this is how uh, we manage our culture or our politics or our uh, our national resources in some sense, perhaps as well. Uh, you go from uh, maybe it's Andrew Jackson that kind of turns the tide and how, how we begin to to um, imagine politics in this dichotomous way, I suppose, the the um, the way in which uh, Jackson pretends to be a particular, even though I'm sure he, he was in many ways what he what he came from. He also did a very uh, good job of pretending to be the kind of person that was also uh, from the underclass, I suppose. I mean, why Jackson is significant is um, he is seen as the first president to be identified with the common man, um, in part because he came from a poor background. Uh, He ended up migrating into Tennessee. Uh, He was not as well educated as his you know, as his predecessors, or even the people he was running against. You have to remember, you know, one of the people he was running against was John Quincy Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, not only the son of a previous president, but probably one of the smartest presidents we've ever had. <laughs> That's a mark against him. You know, he taught rhetoric at Harvard. Right. He was knowledgeable in diplomacy. And in a way, it's sort of that problem we even face today, where, where intelligence is disparaged. Right. Um, so Jackson is important because he was the first person in which his supporters wrote a campaign biography mm-hmm. about him. He didn't write it himself. It wasn't a memoir. Uh, but they, it, it's significant because they were saying his life story is the reason you should vote for him. Um, and what I highlight is he was always very controversial. Uh, people, what I found so strange is that people thought he was more genuine because he talked like average men at mm-hmm. the time of the working class and the lower classes because he was known for cursing or what they described as slamming oaths. 
Right. So, <laughs> um, so you'd want to have a beer with Andrew Jackson. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and, the, and the, 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 he was so controversial that, of course, he, he the same way these ideas were being celebrated and we see the emergence of a certain kind of what I call, you know, cracker populism, um, he was also viciously attacked on class terms, particularly his wife, Rachel Jackson, because they had been involved, they had, um, essentially she had been married before, um, and in order to get a divorce, they needed a cause. So she went with Jackson uh, to the, uh, the, they left Nashville, went to Natchez in order to get a cause to get a divorce. Um, but this, by the time he's running for president, was extremely controversial. Uh, so she was attacked for her, you know, backwoods immorality uh, by being called an uh, adulteress. Um, he was seen as stealing another man's wife, uh, and she was also attacked, you know, for the way she talked, her lack of education, you know, that her, you know, favorite tune was possum up a gum tree. <laughs> um, so essentially, you know, at that moment, you can see how important class is to defining uh, American politics, a new kind of populism. But as I also argue, it's a false populism. Um, which gets revived over and over again. It's used in presidential elections. But I quote an, an Australian observer from 1949 who really captured the problem of American democracy. He said that Americans don't have a real democracy because we accept huge disparities of wealth. He said what we do have is a democracy of manners. And what we want from our candidates is for them to look like us, to act like us, to make the claim, even if it's not true, because at the time that even Jackson was running for president, he was very wealthy. He was a slave owner. Um, and that, that demand that we require a performance from our candidates, that they somehow pretend to step down and be one of us, is a consistent theme and a very dangerous theme. It's the same reason why we see candidates going to Iowa and wearing plaid shirts and eating corn dogs. I mean, it's ridiculous, mm -hmm. but it's part of our tradition, and it's, I think, a dangerous part because it distracts people from paying attention to what they really need to know about when they're judging candidates, mm -hmm. um, not to get caught up in the hoopla, not to get caught up in the empty promises, not to get caught up in the performance, a right. performance that is demanded of these candidates to somehow claim to be one of the people. Clearly, as soon as they get into office, they're not one of the people anymore. They're the most powerful person in the United States. Well, there is no, there's nothing but performance that we're made aware of anyway. It's part of the, the difficulty of even understanding how we get information that we can put to use, I suppose, to, to not see just the performance. Um, one of the things that struck me there as you were talking democracy of manners um, in this particular situation, if we imagine the class is the driver, uh, democracy being a mask in some sense to say this, you know, this is not an actual democracy, but it, we can make it look like one, there's also a way in which maybe the, the economic system does the same kind of thing. The capitalism and free markets and these things become masks for class as well. Yeah, I think this, you know, this is one of the things that we don't pay attention to. We, we don't pay attention to how power is really exercised mm -hmm. or we get a glimpse of it. So there's a, there's a scandal and the news covers it um, and then it recedes into the background. Um, and I think that it is a problem when we revert to either thinking, well, American democracy is the greatest in the world, 
when in fact throughout American history there have been endless attempts to disenfranchise the majority of the population over and over and over again. The other problem is this idea as you're talking about, the way if we just assume that the free market economy is magically going to open doors, what we forget is that at the same time it opened doors for one part of the population, it closes doors for other people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So who has privileges? Who has advantages that other people don't have? We don't have an equal playing field. And I think the myth of, of the promise of social mobility, the promise of hard work, the idea of that we are the Amer- that this is the land of the American dream, does serve as a convenient mask because it, it erases power dynamics from the equation. Well, you do mention at some point, I think, too, uh, in the the chapter on eugenics, which I'd like to dive into. It's the the uh, thing that I think is probably most important. I I I think in terms of trying to understand how populations are looked at by people who are you know who are maybe what we might call pure white, um, in the sense that they are the ones in power or the ones who who can exist in that wealthy space and landed space or traditionally. Um, you know, um, in the in the Ivy League space, perhaps I'm not sure. I, I guess I can continue to create tropes of of, of those those class markers, but um, there's a sense where. Uh, the the primary myth of individualism clashes against uh, all of these things that we talk about. You know, we don't live singly, and we are not individually able to manage our lives, and yet we continue to 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 beat that horse over and over again. And it's interesting that that it's something that we fault everyone for um, for their lack of uh, ability to to manage their own lives. Yeah, I think it's the, the individualism is another myth that we tell ourselves. The idea that people imagine they do it on their own, and no one does it on the own. Right. I mean, even today, in 2015, sociologists have found the most important predictor of being successful in this country are the wealth and privileges that come from your parents and your ancestors. So we we are very much shaped by the privilege that comes from the past and is passed from one generation to the next, and that's the importance of inheritance. Heirs. This is again this British tradition, and we 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 don't question that. We somehow say, oh, of course, parents are going to do everything possible for their own children. Mm-hmm. But when we assume that that's the engine that is going to divide us into classes and reinforce class lines, the other important thing that you're referring to with the eugenics movement, this again was my other big theme. I had the theme of wastelands. The other is breeding. Mm-hmm. Breeding, right? An older rural idea where people like Thomas Jefferson sort of assumed that instead of you know, rigid, politically enforced uh, classes. He said, let nature define class. So it's about breeding, and he actually assumed that America would create a natural aristocracy because the best men would not just marry women for wealth, they would select women as mates who were attractive, who were smart, who were virtuous, and they would create uh, through nature a natural aristocracy. Um, and that, but that idea, again, comes from the British, because the British were equally obsessed with pedigree, with lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, even our current obsession with genealogy right. um, is an extension of that. And this is where eugenics comes from, because <clears throat> long, even before the eugenics movement begins to gain momentum in the late 19th and early 20th century, we already have people like Alabama's Daniel Hundley, who was the foremost defender of Southern society and wrote a book in 1860 where he said the South had seven different classes. And he said at the top 
was an inherited aristocracy, descendants, descendants of royal cavalier blood. And then at the bottom, of course, he put white trash, who were heirs of the wretched poor dumped in the American colonies. So that idea of thinking of people's breeds reinforces the idea that you are born to your station. And that idea of animal husbandry focusing on breeding, uh, be, you know, reaches its fullest development with the eugenics movement. Mm -hmm. And what we forget about the eugenics movement, which I think is so important, we like to think, oh, that's something that the Nazis believed in. Well, in fact, eugenics, the leading promoters of eugenics were in the United States and Great Britain. And the Nazis built on our research, our pseudoscience. And it was widely endorsed by academics, scientists, the military, used IQ testing during World War I. Uh, and, as I also highlight, it was endorsed by prominent politicians like Theodore Roosevelt. And I think this idea, this fear, was that we had to protect our pedigree. And pedigree wasn't only the pedigree in your family, now it's the whole national stock that needed to be protected and preserved. So you get 1913, Roosevelt wrote to the head of the Eugenics Record, Records Office and said, degenerates must not be permitted to re reproduce their kind. And this wasn't just a small, little, minor movement. By 1931, 27 states had sterilization laws on the books, and eugenics courses were added to college curricula. Hmm. So, and I, of course, highlight the important Supreme Court case in 1927, Buck v. Bell, and who is the person on trial but Carrie Buck, and she was chosen because she was the perfect specimen of white trash, and here's how she was described. She was described as one of the shiftless, ignorant, and worthless class of antisocial whites of the South. And this is the sort of, we can see the potential when we target a group, we rationalize and claim that they're permanently going to remain inferior, nothing you can do can change that. Charity won't work. Giving them education is a waste of time. And then, you, you know, the alternatives that in this case developed was that they shouldn't be allowed to breed, that they essentially should be sterilized. And the largest group that was targeted for sterilization were poor white women. Hmm. And there's also a racial dynamic to this as well, because the fear of many prominent elites, particularly in the South, and this is connected to the famous Virginia Integrity Act of 1924, because the Buck v. Bell case also came out of Virginia, was the idea that poor whites, because they were poor, were more likely to socialize with blacks, and they were also kind of the dangerous uh, source for increasing, you know, the mixing of the races. Hmm. So these fears, the way in which we think about class, the way in which it takes on traits of, you know, viewing classes as breeds is, is, is very comparable to the way our racial thinking was, was perpetrated mm -hmm. and well ingrained in the 19th century as well. Wow. Um, and this is kind of the dark side of the history. So you can't believe <laughs> that kind of, believed yeah. in yeah. individualism for everyone. They, right. they believed, they, and this goes back to our founders. The founders believed, yes, in protecting the idea of liberty, but they believed that only people who owned land who were educated and responsible could exercise that liberty. Yeah, responsible to be uh, at liberty. Right. right. 
Well, you know, we, uh, uh, let's 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 go back to the uh, the Virginia law. Uh, law was that 1924 that you, yeah. that you said. Uh-huh. So, uh, and and the way you expressed that there was the fear of the uh, the vagabond white trash group that's dangerous um, mixing then with the uh, the uh, as bad or worse, uh, uh, I guess, African American people in 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 that space as well. So it's it's a fascinating thing that that that's a bald statement of why you create or continue to create the sort of dissension of racist you know particulars within these communities as well so so they don't get together and and join forces yeah i mean that's kind of the interesting thing i mean with the racial integrity act it was intended to prohibit marriage between blacks and whites mm-hmm. it also targeted people who claimed they had indian blood mm. as the, the, the the people promoting this law assumed that people were using that as an excuse to mm. hide you know, they're black blood. And this, and this is the way they talk about it. I mean, yeah. this is like going, I mean, when you talk about bloodlines, right. this is like the same thinking that can be traced back to Thomas Jefferson, and it hasn't evolved one iota. And I think that the eugenicists, they also wanted to require a racial registry, tracking mm-hmm. pedigrees, to ensure that no light-skinned black with Indian blood might marry a white person. Right. They really had this fear that because poor whites and poor blacks were more likely to socialize. And this we can trace to the assumption that I think most people tend not to understand is the idea that many middle class and elites believed that, you know, poor whites were literally no better than poor blacks. Um, So this idea that everyone assumed, oh, whites are always superior is not true. Uh, and they assumed that the reason the poor whites and poor blacks were similar is that they lived near each other. They lived in the same neighborhoods. Um, so the idea of how we even, this was, this was true in the 1920s, this, this assumption that we assume that, you know, poor whites were always the ones on the attack, they're the ones leading the charge, the racist charge, to ensure the boundaries between white and black and, and are grasping to whatever little privilege they might have, that isn't always historically true. Hmm. Um, it's used by politicians, and I highlight is that as well. It was used by people like James Martin in Mississippi in the 1900s, Orville Faubus around the Little Rock, mm-hmm. Arkansas, integration controversy, people like George Wallace. It's convenient for politicians to sort of use that rhetoric of the zero-sum game, that if you give any privilege to free blacks, somehow that deprives from, you know, working-class whites. And we know that rhetoric works and right. used over and over again. But it doesn't explain the whole history. <laughs> it doesn't actually explain the, the nature of social and personal relationships that did exist between poor whites and poor blacks. And you're right, the, the greatest, one of the greatest fears of many elites particularly in the South, with the rise of the populist movement, where it was assumed that, you know, the interests of poor blacks and poor whites should be united. Right. That essentially they did have the same issues, the same concerns, the same grievances. So that movement was going to be, here we get back to your idea of the, the, the people who had economic power were immediately going to try to destroy that movement, undercut that movement. Mm-hmm. And eventually the leader of it would end up using the same kind of racist rhetoric that other politicians had used. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, the, the complicated side of our history. And 
you know, what I try to argue is that we have to understand that race and class are intertwined. We have to realize that we don't want to confuse white privilege with class privilege. Not all whites are in the same boat. They don't have the same opportunities, and neither do all African Americans today. We can't assume that even racism operates independent of class. We know it doesn't. So I think to fully understand the long and complicated history of race and class, we have to sort of look at them um, at each historical period and how they define people's real lives, their material conditions, how it shapes certain ideologies, how it can be exploited by politicians, and when there is pushback, uh, when people do argue against these kinds of prejudices. But it's, you know, it's an unending battle. Yeah, it's, um, it's I, to stick with a little bit the the idea of breeding, it's one of those things that just always strikes me as such a, and an, um, for lack of a better term, I'd say it was interesting, the idea that you, you look at the science that you can and, and you, you, you mark Darwin in here as well and you compare Darwin's uh, uh, talking about breeding to Jefferson's and noting you know, the various uh, people that clearly have this sense that you can make people, <clears throat> excuse me, you can make people like you make horses or uh, cattle but this is as as we tie this into slavery it's an interesting uh thing to think about too obviously i think that uh um uh, enslaved peoples were also uh, i think probably bred and experimented as 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 breeding stock as well yeah i highlight that a lot that was a kind of dominant theme in the colonial period one of the most important laws ever passed in the colonial period was a virginia law of 1662 which basically said that you are a slave when your mother's a slave. Mm-hmm. So basically it's saying that your matrilineal lineage, your pedigree tracing back from your mother, and, and that also reinforced the idea that the child is being equally defined as a bastard because the father's identity is mm-hmm. important, reinforced again this idea of breeding. And, and clearly people who had slaves into the 18th century referred to the children as breedlings. You know, they referred mm. to them and used the exact same language. Um, and the, the, you know, for poor whites, as I also highlight, in the colony of Georgia, which, tried to, which kept slavery out of the colony because it was seen as disadvantaging poor whites. Yeah, Indiana did the same. One right. of the arguments that's raised again and again is that the power of the slave owner is not only that he owns the best land, but that he has this breeding stock, essentially, of slaves um, that would outnumber uh, poor whites, and they just couldn't compete. Mm. So that language of breeding, yes, is a consistent theme that links both class uh, and race in significant ways. Um, and, and what I have tried to do is say that it, how it also shapes the class vocabulary. Many historians have highlighted the racial dynamic, but they've missed the class dynamic. It's it is is it a hard thing to uh, to realize? I think that a lot of these things are visual markers too. That we uh, like, I, I suppose it's a, a common understanding now of the brain that it kind of operates operates on its own at least initially, right? And so, how you grow up and and the world you live in, and if you take that experience elsewhere, you tend to take you take that experience in your thinking with you, and and you tend to respond out of those those that environmental. Um, I guess education. Um, so I was thinking this is a difficult thing as as these are visual 
markers. You mark, I think, in particular, the physical appearance of, of many that we term white trash or uh, some other uh, disparaging term. They're uh, undernourished, or um, I think there's a, a section in your book on uh, a hookworm clan or something like that. Yes, yes. But, yeah, I mean, this is, you're exactly right. I mean, one of the points I make is class is not just about wealth and occupation. It's, as we've seen, it's about pedigree and breeding. It's about appearance. Mm-hmm. It's about the way you dress. It's about the way you talk. I mean, have we forgotten My Fair Lady? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we immediately judge people unconsciously when we look at them and we size them up. Why do we refer to the nouveau riche? Because these are people who've moved up the social ladder. That's not celebrating upward mobility. That's saying these people don't belong here. Right. They don't know the unspoken rules of how you're supposed to behave when you move into the upper middle class or the elite class. That's the basic message, basic message of the Clampets. Yes, yes. I mean, if you think that, that whole sort of television show was about accentuating the way in which the, the Clampets didn't belong in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as one, I highlight uh, what I thought was an amazing article that was written in 1963 by Hal Humphreys of the Los Angeles Times, where he said the Clampets proved that Americans are very class conscious, conscious, because essentially every episode <laughs> was about you know the wealthy banker mm-hmm. uh, and his you know family, you know his snobby wife and his effete son were always getting into tangles with the Clampets. And the point of the, the message was to say, well, we don't want to be like the snobs or the slobs. We are the, you know, going to be in the middle, and we're superior, and therefore we can laugh at these, you know, these clownish people and their class deficiencies. Uh, but that's the, the dark side, because I think that um, that's the thing I'm trying to get at, is the way in which class it operates as an ideology, where you always are comparing yourself to someone else. Hmm. And you're always trying to say, you're better, mm-hmm. you're superior. Right. Um, and I think even in the contemporary movement, where I talk about the recovering of redneck roots, when from the 70s onwards, Mer- Americans decide or decided that middle-class life was boring. Everybody wanted to find an authentic, you know, their authentic roots. So you have uh, Alex Haley's roots. You have people celebrating the Jewish ghetto. And then, of course, you have the rediscovery of the redneck in the hills, which becomes very much identified with NASCAR. Right. Um, this raw masculine energy. And this is, an, uh, this is an older theme. This actually even goes back to Theodore Roosevelt in The Strenuous Life. There are always these moments in American politics where we think we've become too effeminate. Mm-hmm. So we have to rediscover some authentic masculinity. And this is what the redneck became hmm. a symbol of. But that's, again, a myth. Right. Uh, the same way we want to look into the past and find our heritage, we're only going to look and find what we think is the best trait. We're going to, again, erase all the qualities that we maybe don't want to remember about our ancestors or our relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, this is sort of a, a reinvention of the wheel, but it's, it's, it's another way of how Americans uh, tend to avoid the class problem, and look for a story that somehow celebrates inclusion, but at the same time, it doesn't really celebrate inclusion. It's it's still about dividing lines, uh, and it's still about, you know, making sure that people can say, well, I represent this, therefore I'm superior to you in some way. 
It struck me when I was reading, um, you mentioned um, at some point uh, be, uh, people being called or having yellow skin, um, a parchment type or something like that, uh, the yellow disease look about them. And it struck me that uh, I was just reading uh, Frankenstein, actually, and it's a big part of Frankenstein is how he responds with horror to the monster's uh, flesh and his eyes, which are yellowish, and his flesh is yellowish. And um, there's this, this, to me, it seems interestingly uh, consonant to think of eugenics and creating this beast, you know, uh, that is uh, not... Uh, um, not wholly, um, or I guess something out of out of the devil's, uh, you know, cauldron. Yeah, I mean, the, the tallow skin is really important. It, mm. it, it really, be, I mean, it actually is associated with some squatters and crackers. There's descriptions of their brood of yellow children, mm. but it becomes really emphasized by the antebellum period, particularly the 1840s, and it's identified, their skin color is compared to candle wax, it's tallow, and th- this idea of being not quite white. And this is, this is when, when white trash are begin to be seen as a curious species, hmm. no different than the way in which, you know, uh, the Chinese were seen as exotic, or Native Americans. So skin color, I mean, this is another example. The same way we know that race is defined by skin color, it even is applied and used to talk about poor white. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the cause of that, when it's first being identified, people don't understand the diseases that the poor right. from. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned them earlier, these really horrible diseases of pellagra and hookworm. And hookworm has to be the most horrible disease possible, and people should read about that and realize why it was, why it was incredibly dangerous to walk around barefoot. Mm. You know, our, our happy ideas of the boy on the hills. And yeah, and Tom Sawyer. Dangerous. And Huck Finn. When you don't have right. proper sanitation. Right, right. Where hookworm came from. Mm. And it isn't until the early 20th century they begin to address the disease and try to cure the disease. And that is, you know, why you have that famous photograph from the Rockefeller Foundation um, of the 10,000 hookworm family who are seen as being saved from hookworm. But the, the key thing is hookworm and pellagra were also called the lazy diseases. Mm. So this reinforces the idea that, you know, these diseased people, that laziness itself, and this is what eugenicists believe, they believe that prostitution, that laziness was something that was an inherited trait. Just fascinating. It's just, it's just, it's just so. Um, but it's so consistent and so continuing, right? It's not like we're we've moved anywhere different from this particular perspective, as far as I can tell. Well, I think when we, when again today, when we either say that the poor, and there are people, unfortunately, I think one of them I quote in my book who says that uh, essentially the poor should be willing, as I said, to starve a little. Hmm. Um, or that if you're not working hard enough, it's your fault that you're not getting ahead. Right. Well, you pointed this or out. when we that... say that the promise of the American dream is available to all. Right. Not. Um, so we're still trapped in this idea of dismissing the poor, blaming the poor, and failing to recognize that the most important thing um, for often determining our success, and this is a quote that I particularly like because I think it's, it's really powerful, is from the 1962 landmark study on poverty. This is The Other America by Michael Harrington. Mm-hmm. And he captured the devastating reality. Uh, and one of the things I also highlight is how children are such an important symbol of class standing. But he highlighted the reality. He said, the poor were where they are because, quote, 
they made the mistake of being born to the wrong parents. Right. And that gets at the heart of the problem. Right. <laughs> when we don't acknowledge the privilege that middle class and upper middle class people have, when they are given, whether it's wealth, education, um, and one of the studies I also cite, which is really remarkable, is that in the United States today, the middle and upper middle class give almost, on average, 50% of their wealth to their children. Whereas in other countries, where they provide more social services, Sweden and Denmark, they give closer to 25%, 20%. And this is a perfect example. We are replicating by making it all about inheritance, the old world aristocracies. Whereas these countries that people want to disparage disparage and say, oh, they're promoting socialism, in fact, are doing, have more social mobility than we do. Hmm. uh, Because it's not all dependent on the wealth of your parents. Where you come from, yeah. Well, uh, can we uh, can we also approach um, any of this um, if we consider the what I think is another kind of uh, maybe it's peculiarly American is the the sort of rise of of the con man as as like some great hope uh, that we seem peculiarly uh, well I won't use that word again uh, <laughs> we seem particularly almost as hard that word uh, susceptible to to the con and the grift in this country. Is there any link there? Yeah, I think that again goes back to the idea of the democracy of manners. Mm. Um, I think that when we want a performance, we want people to put on a show and pretend to be one of us, then we're not really listening to what they're saying. We're not asking them what their policies are. Um, And I do think that even if you take that outside of politics, if you talk about how con men... Uh, th- this idea of how you can, you know, pretend to play a role, in, and we know the famous stories that of, of people who, you know, pretended to be a doctor and got away with it. Um, I think part of that is this other side of how we think about class identity. If we think about how class identity is something that's learned, that it's measured by the way you dress, by the way you talk, by the way you carry yourself, your gestures. These are things that can be learned, and therefore a con man can master them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, another thing. That's always, that's, I don't actually write about that, but it's something other historians have written about, about how it's created an anxiety that, again, illegitimate people, interlopers, uh, move into areas and claim status that they haven't earned. Uh, but, but the other problem with that, it may be the best example of social mobility, because the other side is, well, why haven't they earned it? Because they didn't inherit it from their parents? Because they weren't born to wealth and power? I mean, this is the other side. So, so there's a lot of anxiety surrounding how we think about social mobility. We don't, as I, as I, I say, Americans have a tough time with real equality. We like abstract equality. And we also, I think, there's a lot of anxiety about the kind of social mobility that we think is, you know, the legitimate kind of right. mobility. Well, as you as you talk and as you've written in this book as well, and 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 we've talked a little bit about uh, education or learning learning these myths and how we learn these myths early and then don't learn anything else. Basically, it's one of those things where you want this book or you want the particulars in this book to be things that we talk about and read about in our schools. Um, but part of the 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 role of the school is to kind of manufacture these same classes. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean that is the problem. Um, that we, 
in you know in most schools you know they don't even require very much history to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the coach is teaching it, as you say. What? But you said the coach was teaching it, so yeah. So <laughs> right. this problem of people not valuing history, right. um, and I think we have a bigger problem today where we've even we it's become so easy to not even care about truth anymore. Mm. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of Stephen Colbert when he talks about truthiness. Right. That we assume it's all about opinion. Everybody has an opinion. Well, it's not true. In mm-hmm. fact, some people have informed opinions, which are based on real data and real facts. But this is where I see, they see the news media as, as creating this, this really debasing of intelligence, debasing of knowledge that doesn't really help anybody. Um, and it opens the door for, you say, for like, Men, for people who can pretend to be talking the truth, pretend to be standing for something, but when you scratch the surface, you realize that there's nothing behind it, that there is no substance, there are no facts. And I think that that's one of the dangerous things that we need to recover. We have to learn the ability, and that's really hard, too, because not everyone has the same educational opportunities. How do you learn to be critical if you don't have knowledge in which to criticize something? And that's, I think, you know, one of the basic problems of, our, of what we want to have, which is an educated democracy. But even that's not possible because only, you know, 30% of the American population finish an undergraduate college degree. So what are you going to do? What's going to be the way you educate the rest of the population? How are you going to make people into educated voters? Um, it's, it's really extremely difficult when we have not provided for the ability of people to get a college education. Um, and I think there's, you know, this is where I also disagree with Bernie Sanders. You can't just say, oh, free education at public institutions. Well, you know what's going to happen with that. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, you're going to have people flooding to get to the public schools, uh, the public universities, it, they're not going to be able to handle the application numbers, um, and you're still going to have a hierarchy of schools. Because first, because the free education doesn't apply to the most elite schools. They're going to keep going along the way they've always been in the Ivy League. So you, can't, you have to sort of actually think of a, a, a way to provide for education um, through different means rather than simply the college education. Right, right. Well, this is one of the That's points... really hard to do. Well, one of the points... I don't have any the, simple answer. Sure. One of the points of, you know, when we were going through a period of, uh, of, of you know, really talking about communism early on in this country as well, part of the ways that we educated was, you know, outside the, outside of education entirely, right? Groups got together and talked about texts and, and tried to educate each other in, 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 these, in these ways rather than institutionally, which is part, uh, again, I think... you. As you po- as you point out throughout that these are institutional uh, ingrained institutional responses as well that these are these class differences are institutionalized and that education the education itself uh, education system is an institution that also is uh, operates within that space so it's a difficult thing to imagine uh, that changing within this environment and you know when we talk bef- you know, about trying to start 
start education, you know, with um, by debunking myths or not even not even talking about the, the the history in any mythical sort of way. You know, so we know the the truth of George Washington doesn't need to be the myth. It needs to be the the facts that we know about him and his work or his slave owning or and not about his teeth or about a, a fake tree or, you know, so you right. know, these are the things you need to have kids who will immediately at age seven, uh, you know, call BS on things. Right. No, and I think, I mean, if we had, we do have adult education, but it's always voluntary. Right. And even if you tried to include education, let's say if it was required when you hired someone that you added, you had ongoing educational seminars and you had academics come in and give talks. Um, again, the business, private business interests would, would maybe be editing what, who could talk and right. what they could talk about. Sure. So it's, that's, that's part of the problem. We think that the private sector can do it all. Uh, it can't. Right. Um, and finding a way to educate people in more creative ways, a way that they'll see that this knowledge serves a purpose to them, not that it's just a luxury, not just a dilettantish activity, uh, but there's a purpose to it, is also something that we need to recover, because I think we have this whole strain of anti-intellectuals in this country. Right. It's somehow, you know, intel- and this isn't, it's true, some intellectuals do just talk to one another. <laughs> That's, that's just, again, you can't dismiss a whole group of people and say they all think alike and they all have one agenda. Right. This is disparaging when you turn around and say that you know, people who aren't educated have nothing to contribute. Um, but, th- but I think our country is very divided right now. It's very hard to bridge these gaps because of the way in which we rely so heavily on identity politics. Um, and it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to get people to step out of their way of thinking and to embrace something that's new and different. Right. That's the hardest, I think, the hardest part of breaking down these barriers. Well, you made the point, and I think this is this is what I guess makes me as nervous as anything else, is, you know, when you made the point about the, the Nazi party basically pulling from our own, um, from the history of, of the U.S., from the sti- science of the U.S. And, the, and Great Britain as well, and the idea of pedigree, and, and like these things t- to me seem more in front of us than they have ever been uh, in this country, and it's, uh, it's, it's more obvious even as we have politics that we call alt-right now, which is, you know, uh, a, a white supremacist politics that is out front and not ashamed to say it at this point. Right. And, and, and you could even say that about Donald Trump's birtherism, mm-hmm. that rely on. That was a kind of ridiculous form of pedigree that he was, you know, claiming about Obama mm-hmm. um, and endorsed by others that somehow, you know, he wasn't a legitimate American, he wasn't born here. And then the argument that was made by people like Newt Gingrich, that he had inherited the radical politics of his Kenyan father. I mean, how ridiculous is that? But the fact is, when people are looking for something that allows them to say that somebody's not an American, that they're not the right racial stock, they're not the right people to be in this country, it, it, it fuels this idea that some people have a greater claim to be Americans than others. And as we know... We all, nobody, were the original occupants of America. (laughs) We should get rid of everyone who is, you know, of European descent and elsewhere and return the country to all Native Americans. Um, And that's the problem when you start trying to invent myths and start arguing that there's, you know, somebody who has a greater claim uh, than other people. 
Well, you do point out that this, I mean, the, that this is our fact. Uh, your, your book, White Trash, points out that white trash is the fact of America. This is the land of the disposable, the, the home of the, uh, the, the um, off-scourings. Yeah, and I think this is, this is, you know, this is part of what we have to recognize, that America does not just open doors, it closes doors. We've had more downward mobility than upward mobility. Our country throughout its history has been racked by depressions, by panics. I mean, that's why I always highlight the Great Depression. It's a really, that chapter we see where, for the first time, Americans are taking a much more sensitive and complicated way to talk about class. And why? Because in 1932, 20% of the population are out of work. Mm. You can't suddenly blame the individual for not having a job. Um, and I think that's why we have this moment where suddenly people are much more empathetic to poor white tenant farms. Mm. Uh, and they begin to realize that uh, the possibility that the economy does shape your opportunities, right. that those opportunities are not equal across the board, um, and that even for, for things beyond your control, it also undermines that whole idea of individual agency. That you may want to work hard, you may be smart, you may be talented, but there's just no job for you. Right. Suddenly that makes people realize that maybe they shouldn't be so easy, it shouldn't be so easy to dismiss other people who've had bad luck, right. who've had misfortune, um, who haven't been given certain privileges, such as educational opportunity. Right, you say, but that didn't stay with us, though, right? I mean, that's, part, no, that's, right. that's the part of the problem, is you can... You have, I mean, right. you do have that interesting, you know, post-World War II moment, mm -hmm. where for the very first time, the American, the American, America has a more stable middle class, and why? Not because of the free market, but because of the federal government. Mm -hmm. By the GI Bill providing education, by the federal government for the first time, you know, insuring home mortgages, so people can buy homes, people can, can invest in businesses. Um, so that idea that, I mean, that is kind of an interesting moment, which I highlight, where we see there is more of an embrace of understanding and appreciating lifting people up and having a middle class. But even then, I highlight it's not perfect, because with suburbia, we have what we still do today. We think home ownership is the key measure of being in the middle class. But then what happens at the same time? We have the rise of trailer parks. Mm -hmm. And we have the reinvention of the mobile poor. Just like vagrants, this time it's a home on wheels. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and trailer parks are located in the worst parts of the cities, on the margins. Right. You have secondhand, thirdhand trailers being sold and as sociologists begin to describe hillbilly havens. So even when America does have a kind of more stable middle class, we don't even at that moment completely acclaim. We don't achieve what Richard Nixon claimed we achieved in 1959, a classless society. Well, you, you make the point uh, continually that uh, these, are, these are, I mean, poverty is constructed in possibly the same way whiteness is constructed. Was that you? Yeah. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> so I got I got scared there for a second. Yeah, I'm not sure if my phone is running out of it. Oh, well, power. I've been keeping you a long time. I can I can cut that last thing yeah, if it made no sense. You know, I like to qualify when we talk about whiteness. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, I think some scholarship 
that's been done on whiteness, you know, ignores class completely. Mm-hmm. As I said before, not all white people are in the same boat. We know that 42, 42.1% of those below the poverty line are white. Um, so we have this problem. I mean, I think it was in an interview I did yesterday where the person was highlighting a journalist's response about somehow we have to choose whether it's race or class, which is the most important variable. And that's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to understand both of these conditions, both of these variables, to understand the past or the present. Um, and we have to understand that whiteness, I think, can, has been used by elites to make certain claims about being in power. There's no doubt about that. But the same people who are, are the elites, and that's why I always go back to the Southern planters, who thought they were royal cavalier blood, they also looked down on poor whites and thought they were more worthless than slaves because poor whites didn't even work. They were just parasites. They were waste. Yeah, they were not economically viable. So that's the, the problem we have. Who, who has the claim to whiteness can be reinforced by class power, but when we analyze that, we have to realize that it's the class power makes that possible. Hmm. It's not available to all white people in the United States, either historically or here and now. In, in, you know, in 2016. Well, so you stress that the power the, the lower-class white person gets is from not being black. Well, it's very mixed. I mean, I think that's why it gets complicated. Mm-hmm. There, are, there is, again, a political ideology during the Confederacy. Uh, they made that argument. They claimed that if you know, slavery was abolished, that that would lower the status of poor whites. But, in fact, the status of poor whites was already at the bottom. Um, so that was a way to convince them to support the Confederacy. It wasn't actually based on actual social conditions. And that's the problem we, we always have. I think we have to distinguish when is it rhetoric, when is it an ideology, the way we talk about race or the way we talk about whiteness. And then does that really match up to, the, to people's actual social conditions, which usually don't match up with the ideology, because ideologies are supposed to mask those problems. Right. Um, and I think that's what I really think people have to um, understand, um, that we have to understand our economic divisions, our class divisions, the way they can reinforce racial divisions, but the way they also can be shifted and changed due to economic changes, cultural changes, and they're also very much always wrapped up in political ideology. Mm-hmm. And we, we can't pick one variable on the other and say, that says it all, that's all we need to know about. Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate form of oppression. The world doesn't operate that way. Right. People in power will use whatever is necessary right, right. <laughs> to oppress people. They're not just going to say, oh, I'm going to limit myself to this one category. Right. Well, Nancy Eisenberg, if you had to, is there, is there one particular uh, villain that stands out uh, in this history? Uh, we, as, we, as we talked before, we've got founding fathers. We tend to make heroes. We turn Hamilton into a hero that he wasn't. And is there, is there a villain <clears throat> that you want people to be aware of? I mean, I wonder... I don't like to say... <laughs> Because I don't believe in that. I think that everybody's, nobody's life is perfect. Mm-hmm. I think there are key people in this book who people will find uh, disturbing, like James Vardaman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I do highlight uh, the really horrifying novel and movie Deliverance. Mm. I think is really disturbing for a variety of different re- reasons. Um, Does that make James Dickey a villain? Well, I think I write about him. He has a very, he has a very, very odd past. He mm. had a problem telling the truth. 
which is something his, his son wrote about. And he mm. invented a past for himself. He really believed, you know, he came, his family came from slave owners, but he wanted to pretend that he came from the hill people mm. somehow. And that's that pattern again, where people right. want to invent an identity for themselves, which makes them more macho, mm-hmm. makes them sort of, uh, which allows them to identify with the traits that they think are important. Um, but I, don't, I still don't want to say he's a villain because I think it reflects his own complex psychology. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he did this, this is what I like to say. It gets back to the point I made. We're not all individual actors. People draw from cultural ideas, cultural resources, both consciously and unconsciously, when they choose to say something, to write something, to perpetuate an ideology. Um, we need to critique it. We need to see its flaws. But let's not just say, let's not divide the world into heroes and villains, because I don't think that gets us very far. Sure. Well, I, I agree with that. Uh, however, I think a lot of people have far more influence than other people. And so in, in my, right. yeah, my, my, my reason to say villain, I think, has more to do with that. The fact that uh, we can all uh, acknowledge that people have their own problems, but many of us, uh, many people in particular, have far more ability to influence life uh, for the rest of us. No, I think that's true. I mean, people in power, people who have cultural power, uh, whether it's presidential candidates, whether it's people in political office, um, whether it is people who produce cultural texts, you know, best-selling books or novels, uh, or the news media, yes, we, they have a lot more influence than the average individual uh, because they're trying to shape the way people, mm-hmm. they're trying to influence people. And that's why I think we have you know, why we need that ability to be skeptical, right. not sort of assume that just because someone who's famous says something, that it's right. right. Um, and that when someone does say something, you have to kind of do your own research and figure out, well, you know, is this even true? Did this even happen? And it gets back to my other point, that we have to kind of value facts again right. um, and not assume that everybody uh, is speaking from a position of knowledge or in an informed position. That's what I wish people would do instead of simply liking a candidate because they satisfy some psychological need or satisfy some mythic way they want to imagine how the world really operates. But Nancy, I've got two tickets to Hamilton. They cost me two grand. I've got to believe in that thing. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> I don't really. Anyone who's listening. Would pay yeah. that kind of money. You know, and that's, I think, the other, you know, and many critics have said this, the other problem of Hamilton is that who's really going to see it? Yeah. It's not the wide swath of America. And, no. You know, someone who teaches in Louisiana, do you think people in Louisiana care about Hamilton? Uh, no. 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 Right. right. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, you could do a very nice class analysis of who actually goes to Hamilton, who likes the play, and why they like the play. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's certainly not. Uh, all of America, right. middle America, who are rallying around Hamilton. Um, and that's, you know, it may change if it's actually made into a movie, then it oh, will be true. like 1776. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'll let that be the last word. Nancy Eisenberg, thanks so much for taking so much time with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, it was nice talking to you.